Welcome to the For the Church podcast, another great gospel-centered resource from Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. My name is Jared Wilson. I'm in the beautiful Spurgeon Library studio. Once again, it's a beautiful spring day. I'm with my partner in radio, Ronnie Kurtz. How are you, Ronnie? I'm great, Jared. How are you? Have you got the coronavirus yet? I haven't. No. Oh, it okay. is. It has been. Man, my wife and I have been following it. It's just crazy. Yeah. It's so weird to see all. I think. I think we're all going to get it. That's, think that's so? what I saw on, on, on TV. Wow. That, it, that pretty much we're all going to get it. Yeah. Uh, because they said the masks don't work. Yeah. They don't help. I, I told my wife, that I was like, people are having to do self-quarantines, you know, and mm. where they basically have to... to I would to, love that. That's what I was about to say. <laughs> I said, that, that it sounds like they're staying home, you know, not being able to be around any people. I was like, wait, this is exactly how you like to operate. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> You've been in a self-contained quarantine for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't want to be sick. And certainly we pray for everybody who's who, who's sick. But the idea of like having to stay home for a long time, that'd be all right. I could do that. Spoken like a true introvert. Yeah. Um, I mean, other than um, avoiding the coronavirus, I, I mean, you know, you're washing your hands. Like, yeah, yeah. I, have I wonder how many people started washing their hands because of this. <laughs> yeah. You filthy animals out there. That's right. Please just wash your hands. It's all your fault that this is happening. <laughs> uh, everything else going okay for you? Yeah, everything's good. Yeah. yeah. How about you? How things in your world? Uh, I, you know, the world's good. You know, you know what's um, – it occurred to me. So I went to Chipotle today. And I, I can't stand Chipotle. That was your first mistake. It was. I, I don't like it. Yeah. In fact, I oh, saw. Oh, that's right. I, I knew saw, you didn't like I it. I saw our dean of students, uh, John Mark Gates, was in there, and, uh, um, you know, I, and I went up like right to him. I had my, uh, you know, I had my bowl, and yeah. my, my hand, and I said, "I don't even like this place." <laughs> <laughs> he said, "Why are you here?" Well, it's quick. Yeah. For one thing, and I can find things that I can eat that yeah. are like you know that are um, semi healthy to eat. And so if you only have 30 minutes, I had to get here to record with you, brother. I didn't yeah, want to make yeah. you wait. You and, ate Chipotle for me. Yeah, exactly. That's, because you can't drive through. Like if you need something quick, I couldn't go to a sit-down place. And, at, you know, I'll, there's nothing at fast food that I can eat. <laughs> so I thought, let me just go to Chipotle. But as a wow. guy, like I grew up on the border eating Tex-Mex. And it's just, it, I'm going to be honest with you, it, it tastes like cardboard everything oh, tastes like cardboard it doesn't matter it all tastes the same my wife's gonna be so sad if she the listens to this episode case. i'm at, my kids love it i feel yeah. like i've you know really um uh you know ruined them yeah or, or somehow i used to love it there was a I group of guys them. of us in college we would have these days that we would call burritos and books where we would go yeah. to chipotle get some burritos and then go book shopping yeah a bunch of nerds you know burritos. we found each other <laughs> but uh but yeah. now i just something switched about two years ago and i just, i switched to team qdoba Oh, and there's is, is there Cadoba here? Yeah, there's a Cadoba. Okay, it's all the same to me. I, <laughs> I need I, I need a real Mexican food. But here's the other thing that I've noticed, and it, and it's all over the place. It's not just Chipotle. Um, where did black beans come from? <laughs> this is a question of all of the questions you have asked me on this FTC <laughs> podcast that I do not know how to answer. Okay. <laughs> uh, like, did you grow up seeing or eating black beans? No. Yeah. Exactly. And, not, and neither. And you. I grew up eating Mexican food like. Five days a week growing up, black beans were not a thing, did not exist. I think they're made in a lab. And all of a sudden, and then people said, like, this is the, this is the healthier bean. And I'm like, why? They're, oh, they're both man. beans. You can have the, you know, the, the, the pinto beans. I yeah. should probably give you your options. Yeah. And I'm, they're like, it's, it's not even a question. Why would I want the black beans? Yeah. You heard it here. They're harder. Listeners, Jared hates black beans. <laughs> they're denser. They're harder. They don't taste as good as a pinto bean. And they're and it's made up. Like they Pinto showed up the on the scene. Bean. Yeah, they showed up on the scene. Like quinoa, <laughs> no one ever heard of quinoa. I'm guarantee. Yeah, I guarantee. Like Monsanto invented yeah. quinoa. Wow. Or you know, Bill Gates something made quinoa, 
and it did not exist five years ago. I think this is value for an episode alone. Now it's everywhere. <laughs> Quinoa and black beans. The black bean episode. And I won't stand for it. <laughs> I, I don't. Yeah. Hey, you gotta you gotta fight your battles. Live your truth, Jared. I know. That's man. It's just one thing after another. Black beans, and then also fruit and salads. Are you down with that, <laughs> Ronnie Kurtz? I did not grow up. You never grew up with a salad with yeah. strawberries in it. Hey, they're like, let's put them in cereal. Okay, okay. Hey, what about salad? <laughs> let's put fruit. Let's put blueberries in but, with this salad with salad dressing. However, often when I do add, you're fruit about to, to say stuff, that you do this. It gets better. Yeah, I don't know. No one's ever looked at a fruit salad and said, you know what this needs? Iceberg lettuce. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just put some lettuce. Let's put some kale yeah. in here with the pineapple. Wow. It, um, Yeah, it's just that's my latest beef right now. Yeah. Is that where did these foods come from? I, I'm super I love skeptical. This. The old foods were fine. The yeah. old way of doing salad was fine. This is two episodes in a row now that we've recorded where you've started with a major gripe about the world. That's what I'm saying. I, it's a regular feature now. I like this. It's, it's just <laughs> the beginning of the podcast. Beefs. Jared's beefs. Where's the beef? That's what no. we're going to do. That's a that's an 80s reference. That, last time I mentioned Michael McDonald, you had yeah. no idea who I was talking about. These are 80s references going right over Pat my head. Pat you know who that is? You might need a new co-host here. I, might. <laughs> I need to get someone older than me so I can be like, I have no idea. 22 yeah. skidoo. What does that mean? <laughs> and they can gripe about right. some random food. That's and right. <laughs> Soupy sales. Never heard of that guy. Soup's on sale. Uh. Just don't eat the black beans. Hey, it's, an, it's a mailbag episode. Fun. We just answered how to eat salad, how to eat Mexican food. Yeah. And sure, those, those were, were freebies. Nobody asked us about those. <laughs> we just brought those to you free of charge. But we've got some listener submitted questions I thought maybe we could work through. Would that be good? You got of some course. time? Okay. Let's do it. That's good. Uh, FTC mailbag. This is from Taylor uh, via Facebook. Actually, all of these are from Facebook. Isn't that interesting? That is interesting. Sometimes we get some Twitter, but no, w- there are more jokers on Twitter. Yeah. I post what should we talk about on Twitter and like, 80% of the replies are people being stupid. You know, the Alan Nobles of the world. I get the, it. The Jack Ringwaters. They're always, <laughs> yeah. you know, just joking around. Twitter's the home of sarcasm. It's, yeah, it. things have really shifted. So we got some serious questions from Facebook. And here's Taylor asking, how do we make an A-plus in family while ministering faithfully? It's the age-old question of that kind of ministry balance. How do I yeah. balance ministering family? But how do I make sure I'm not failing at home while also not failing at church? Ronnie? Yeah, I think this is a great question. And it is, it is the age old question. And so it, for me personally, it's the question that it kind of waxes and wanes as to my success in it. You know, there are seasons in which, um, I think, Hey, my family's thriving. At least it feels like it's thriving. Yeah. You know, our affections are being stirred for the gospel and, and for the Lord. And, um, and then there are seasons where I don't even recognize it, but I realize I'm not being an, an amazing family man. And I'm like, I gotta, I gotta repent and change things, you know? And mm. so this is the question. And I think something that has helped me and, and my wife and our family is, uh, just regularly checking up on her and letting her speak into that question. Yeah. You know, how does, how does she, cause there's, for me, I am, I am goal oriented. I'm task driven and I could work all day, every day. That's just how I am in it is bad in a lot of ways. I typically find rest in productivity. Okay. So it's not fun for me just That's to weird. sit around and watch TV. Mm-hmm. I want to accomplish something. Yeah. Typically it's it's rest when it's something that someone's not telling me to do. So if I can write a poem or read a fiction book or something, that's restful for me. But um so when I'm being so task oriented, it's easy for me just to assume, you know, oh yeah, my family's doing great. But but my wife has a much better um intuition about the yes. health of our own family. Yeah. And so 
making sure that I'm staying in tune with her is really key for me. Yeah. Um, yeah. Don't assume from silence that everything's fine. Absolutely. Because um, most wives are um, really, they're really sweet. They're mm-hmm. trying to carry the burdens. Um, they probably are thinking that they don't want to put another burden on you That's to right. express some kind of, um, for lack of a better word, neediness or just a need or, or a hurt or, or something like that. Um, or they may be giving you the benefit of the doubt to think, oh, this is just uh, a season and it'll end. But if you've really developed a sort of habit or a pattern of ministry where family is really kind of the last thing on your list or, yeah. they get, or, or they get your leftover time or your leftover energy, um, then it, it reaches a breaking point. Yeah. And so don't just assume because she hasn't said, hey, I really need you to slow down or I really need to go on a date this week or whatever it is. Don't assume that she's not thinking those things. And maybe she's not, but you still should prioritize them anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I think it's a matter of prioritization. Um, I'm, I'm somewhat skittish about the balance word. When people say, how do I balance family and ministry? Mm. Sometimes they're trying to think of it. It sometimes is communicated as if there's some kind of equal weight or, or something like that. And I think it's helpful to remember that Christ is, is married to his church that the you know the church is Christ's bride, your wife is yours, mm-hmm. and he can be trusted totally with the church. Um, your your bride is your priority in terms of nurturing her, caring for mm-hmm. her, loving her. You can always get another church, right? I mean, if we're just thinking of the extreme example, if you're thinking about like you know my you know my I have to you know go at this tilt or the church is gonna you know I'll lose the church or something like that. That's an unhealthy situation to begin with. That's right. Um, but if it came down to it, you should lose the church and not your wife. And in the end, I think most churches should understand, but certainly every pastor should understand that investing in your marriage is one of the best gifts you can give to your church. Yes. It, it's good for your church that you have a healthy marriage, that you love being at home with your wife and mm-hmm. with your kids. Um, it's good for the church that you take time away with them. It's good for the church that you um, are pouring into uh, the spiritual care of your wife and 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 investing in her happiness and her joy in the Lord, because um, it it will end up a train wreck on both ends mm-hmm. if you are going full tilt speed on the church and short shrifting your wife. If down the road, um, you know, burnout or a breakdown in your relationship, that's not just a breakdown in your relationship that will cause issues, mm-hmm. um, perhaps even disqualifying issues in worst case scenarios. Um, but also, you know, why spend your wife to gain the church that you end up losing from having spent her anyway. Absolutely. Uh, so I think prioritization has a lot to do with it. And just, you know, be mindful. Every wife is different. Some, um, you know, uh, um, you know, are more um, independent minded and, you know, can bear the burden of a, of a, you know, pastoral husband who, you know, works uh, longer hours than others. Mm-hmm. But you just have to be attuned to your wife. You know, as Peter says, live with your wife in an understanding way, which I take to mean to be somewhat of a student of her. And make sure that you put as much time into kind of studying her as you do what you need to do for the church. Yeah. Um, I, and, and I think that's how you do it. Not only is every every wife different, but every season's different as well. Yes. And so I think it's important to say that if you're if you know, if your wife was okay with a particular type of work uh schedule that you've had, it, it might not always be that way. Yeah. Um and and this is why I say it's just so important in in what you just said, to regularly tune in, you know, and if 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 your wife is is a stranger to you, it's going to be hard to know if you're leading her well. Yeah, and and that's important. I think most wives, not just ministry wives, but most wives, want to f- 
feel like they're in this with you. Exactly. Right? So the, you know, the pastor's wife doesn't want to pastor the church or co-pastor with you, but she wants to feel like she's with you as you pastor, that you're a team in some regard. And so if she's always kind of, you know, the last person to know what's going on with you or or those sorts of things, um, that's kind of an indication that something's probably upside down, mm-hmm. that you're not getting an A-plus in, in family. Good question, Taylor. We really appreciate it. Uh, this question comes from Shebu John. And uh, I know Shebu. He's a pastor in Australia. Great guy. I uh, had him in one of my um, uh, ministry cohorts not too long ago. And Shebu's asking, how do we partner? This is a question that came up a lot in my last context. I thought it was important. Yeah. Um, how to partner with other churches in your area in the gospel without compromising the gospel, right? So you got churches that are in your vicinity. How do you know which ones you can partner with? What can you partner with them on? Are there churches you can't partner with? I don't know. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I I, I want to answer briefly and then turn it over to you because I think having the New England context in your in your past will be really helpful and insightful in this particular question. But for us, we we have a couple of things that are helpful. One, we have a denomination. So yeah. I, I pastor a Southern Baptist church. And so that helps. I already know that the, the other SBC churches are going to be hopefully brothers. And then also we have a network. We're part of the Acts 29 network, which also helps to know that there are like-minded brothers, uh, you know, regionally who are also a part of the A29 network. Apart from that, well, even if we're looking at, you know, cross-denominational, cross-network kind of partnerships, I think theological triage is still really important to keep in mind, okay. you know, and so – uh, there are definitely doctrines such that if if a particular church denies them or affirms them, we will likely not work um, with that particular church, depending on what the work may be, right? Um, but but theological triage, understanding those doctrines that are primary, such that you need to you need to believe them to be a Christian, or secondary that we would break fellowship over them, or tertiary that we could be in the same fellowship and still disagree about them, is helpful not just on an ecclesial level, understanding who can be a member and who can't be in a particular local body, but actually uh, more thirty thousand foot view of ecclesiology and understanding who you can partner with. And so I think that that's important to to ask, and then also just what is the goal. You know, I can do a lot more with someone, you know, let's say that we're fighting abortion together or something, you know, fighting right. for um, a pro-life cause. Well, I can do a lot more with a, a church that I disagree with there than I can doing a, a co-Sunday Easter service or something. Right, right. Th- those are very different asks yeah. of my particular church. And so anyways, I'd love to hear what you think, Joe. No, I think you're exactly right. I was, you know, just thinking in terms of there's things, um, if, you know, the the key phrase to me in the question is um, partner with other churches in the gospel. And to me, it's those, you know, you agree on those first order things, um, maybe most of second order things, not maybe not necessarily depending on the nature of yeah. what that partnership is, but if it's like a joint service or something like that. Um, one thing that constantly came up at um, in my last context was different uh, conferences and hmm. where, you know having a guest speaker come in. And I found that um, in many cases, the level of cooperation or partnership that our church could enjoy with some other churches, maybe some Pentecostal churches or things like that, uh, would be um, the pastor's meeting that happened every week. I could go. I could fellowship with the other pastors in that room. We agreed on the chief, you know, um, you know, doctrines, first order doctrines. Um, there were things, uh, we're in the same book. This is how he put it. We're in the same book. We're on different pages. <laughs> we're emphasizing different things. So there were things that we could be co-belligerents about, for yeah. instance, the Crisis Pregnancy Center, which in, in our town was a big deal because there was also Planned Parenthood, and it's a very irreligious area. 
And so the Crisis Pregnancy Center became a place where we could partner in terms of fundraisers or, you know, the, you know, the banquet or volunteering at the center, all those sorts of things, uh, protesting the abortion clinic, all those. We could send our people to meet people from all these, you know, different churches. But <clears throat> if they were to have, for instance, which happened quite a bit, actually, certain speakers come and they're going to, you know, have a, you know, some kind of conference, spirituality conference or something. And they say, you know, here's a flyer, you know, can you put this on your bulletin board? Mm-hmm. I'm doing my due diligence. I'm looking up. Who is this speaker? What does he say? What does yeah. he emphasize? And many times there were things I, I couldn't in good conscience advertise this. I'm still going to meet with you every week for prayer and for fellowship, but I pro- I cannot entrust this person with my people. That's right. And I think those are certain questions to ask. And probably different churches are, are different, but I think if there are, um, you know, community service type things or uh, for lack of a better word, sort of, you know, social causes or concerns that you think are important for your church. Those are things that maybe you can come alongside in terms of volunteerism. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to partner in the gospel, you want to make sure that the other church or the other leaders um, actually understand the gospel and preach the true gospel, and that there's not going to be anything that comes alongside that that could be confusing Mm -hmm. for your people. And that's where I think maybe knowing you know, the susceptibility of your own church. If your church is just very strong doctrinally, you know, every healthy church has new believers, growing believers, and mature believers in it. Um, but most churches have some degree of those different things. If you have a large number of new believers, for instance, it may not be wise to partner with a church that um, has some things that may be confusing or yeah. some secondary issues or tertiary issues that, you know, may be um, uh, distracting right. from that. So. Um, you know, obviously, if you don't have denominational like-mindedness or associational like-mindedness, finding other evangelical churches that prioritize what you prioritize is probably is probably the best route. Absolutely, yeah. You you could press pause, yeah, but that means they could take a coffee break at any moment. <laughs> well, this, this is this permissible is the, coffee. This break. is the official time. You're giving people permission for Keurig. L- I'm giving them permission for pour over. Okay, <laughs> l- just l- let it play out. You know what? This is a tertiary issue. We can partner with you, listener, on however you're going to do your coffee. I can't partner with Keurig, Jared. I'm okay. Sorry. <laughs> All right. I'd had a Keurig decaf this morning. It's just how I'm I sure got to go. Did. I know. I'm really sorry about that. Hey, you do you, listener. Don't <laughs> listen to Ronnie Kurtz. Don't listen to him. We'll be right back. All right. We're back. We're going through some great mailbag submissions. This question comes from Laurie, also on Facebook. All the questions are from Facebook. Laurie on Facebook is asking, how can complementarian churches invest in women? Yeah, I love this question. Yeah. And part the part of the reason I love this question is because at the particular church I love or I, the particular church I serve, which I do love. Which you do love. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Emmaus, uh we have really gifted women. Yeah. A number of them. And they're the, kind of across the board. Like cooking and things like that. Oh maybe. my word. <laughs> On behalf of the women in my church. <laughs> Stop it. Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> well, I just because um, complimentary means you hate women. Some to some people maybe. Yeah. Yeah. That's not I, I actually don't believe that. But yeah. okay, go ahead. I'm totally uncomfortable with this joke. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh no, so we have really talented women at Emmaus and whether it comes to teaching or theology or discipleship, uh counseling especially, we have some really gifted counselors in our mm-hmm. church. And so um so this this question was not one we could avoid. We we just we had to address it. There there are too many competent and gifted women at Emmaus, and and yet we still want to be robustly complementarian, mm-hmm. and and hold to our convictions there. And one of the things that we decided early on as um, a pastoral staff is when we were kind of examining kind of just gender roles and and what all that entails for our church, 
one of, I can't even remember where we heard this, but it ended up being a phrase that we repeated often, but we were talking about the Garden of Eden and in, you know, Genesis 1, 2, 3 there as, as you're kind of in, in the early stages of Genesis, one of the things that's fascinating is really the only tree you hear about um, is 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 um, the, the forbidden fruit. You know, it's like the only the only piece of fruit you hear about uh, that the tree of knowledge and the forbidden fruit. But you don't really hear about the rest of the garden. Okay. And I think this think is there a, are black beans in there. <laughs> there might have been <laughs> the devil uh, brought that. Maybe was the forbidden black beans fruit. was the forbidden. I'm sorry, fruit. rabbit trail. <laughs> uh, no, I I think it's fascinating that there are likely. You know, we we don't know the size of the garden or exactly the geographical location or all any of that, but all you hear about is the prohibition, the one thing to not do. Yeah, and I think complementarian discussions has often turned that way. Yeah, yeah. we only talk about the prohibition. You know, uh, you can't teach or or pastor. Yeah, and because we have so fixated ourselves on the prohibition, we haven't talked about the million other ways women can flourish inside of a local church. Yeah. And and so that's what we've really challenged ourselves to do as a pastoral team is, one, the Lord seems to be pleased to bring Emmaus Church really gifted women who we really respect and appreciate. And two, we want them to use their gifts in a way that's God-honoring and that brings them joy. And so we we have purposely, because we've been given these particular women, uh, we have purposely carved out avenues in which they can practice their gifts and and that in ways that we still feel like we're being convictionally complementarian in, yeah. in a healthy way. So uh, I'm happy to talk about what those things, what those things are, but, but that's just been a really helpful thing for us to think about is we do know the prohibition is there and, and that's not to make light of it. We want to be faithful to that particular, right. you know, command in the text. Uh, however, there is a lot available, you yeah. know, and, and one of the things I think often that we think about is, you know, it's not that, you know, men have their own garden. Adam had his own garden. Eve had her garden. No, it's the same garden. There is a prohibition to the to women in Scripture, uh, but, but we're, I think we're free to roam outside of that and so in biblically healthy ways. Yeah, I think it begins with asking the question, are, are women Christian adults? <laughs> and the answer, of course, is yes. And if women are Christian adults, then the investment in them should begin with what is best for their discipleship? Yeah, what is best exactly for their right. spiritual flourishing? What is best for their flourishing as women? Yes, but what is their, you know, best for their flourishing as, as Christians who are following Jesus? And I think we're coming, at least I am, just maybe showing my age again, but because I think the younger generation is, 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 is so much more mature in, in, in this regard. My generation and, um, there's a reason why my wife was like turned off by women's ministry stuff for mm. years and somewhat skittish about women's ministry things because it was kind of this infant, you know, uh, infantile, um, sort of, you know, kind of pandering, mm. um, it's like a glorified, almost kind of a glorified children's ministry, just to be honest with you, crafts and stories mm. and sometimes dressing up like princesses. And, and I'm like, these are, no, these are adult women who love Jesus and know Jesus. I want to go. And she just got tired of being treated like some, you know, some child that, that wants to just learn about crafts. Now, my wife is an incredible homemaker. She's a stay at home mom. Uh, her gift is hospitality. Her chief gift is, um, hospitality. She loves to cook. She, she takes care of us well. So she's not disinterested in that. She doesn't, you know, think that's, uh, um, you know, um, incidental to, uh, you know, the role of women and, and, and wives and, and, uh, and mothers and those sorts of things. But she wants to know theology as well. She wants to be treated like a Christian adult. And so I think beginning there, yeah. which means 
that women's ministry should be theological. That's right. Women's ministry should be aimed at discipleship. And then, as you said, going beyond that, what are the things that we can do to make um, women's contribution in our church visible and vital to the body? And yeah. as complementarians, we, we understand that women um, cannot uh, uh, serve in the role of elder, cannot um, serve in the function as elder. I know some complementarians kind of fudge there. I'm I don't know what they call it. I'd be a narrow complementarian. <laughs> I'm, I'm whatever you just described. Yeah, yeah so I, I think I'm a narrow complementarian, which means I uh, not only do I think women should function be and office. The, the, yes, it's the function and the office. Um, I'm 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 glad to be you know brothers with my um, broadly complementarian brothers and sisters, um, but I you know I couldn't do church yeah. with them, which Same. is interesting. Um, but in in any respect, not sort of orienting around the prohibition, as you said, acknowledging the prohibition. What does that now allow you, as you said? Yeah. Well, you know, what can you explore? Um, can women – and this may be different in different churches. You know, so I know that there are other narrow complementarians who say women you know, shouldn't do scripture readings or something like that because that's the function of an elder. I disagree with that. Same. But determine in your churches um, how can you make women's leadership, in a sense, visible and vital to the congregation, which likely means not just putting them in charge of the women's ministry and now – you know, which is limited to maybe two women in your body. Mm-hmm. Um, all the women who are believers in, in you know, um, who are members of your church have gifts. Not all of those gifts have to do with cooking and cleaning That's and right. all those sorts of things. Um, but aid in their discipleship, and they can actually aid in the discipleship of the whole body, men and women, when they can serve um, in more visible and vital roles, yeah. I think. So scripture readings, maybe, um, um, you know, strategizing in terms of, uh, you know, leadership teams, all those sorts of things. Anything outside the role or function of an elder, I think, should be open to women. Yeah. And you communicate to your church something important. You may be communicating to, to um, certain marriages in your church that it's actually important to hear uh, a woman's counsel and a woman's wisdom um, in some of these regards. So those are just some, you know, spitball kind of responses. Um, let's move on. This comes from Chris. Chris says, um, I agree that plurality of eldership is a biblical model, but is there such a thing as an unhealthy plurality? We would agree that the solo or, um, you know, that the healthy version of church governance begins with a plurality of eldership. But what does an unhealthy plurality look like? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. And it's, um, I think it happens in a lot of churches where, a brother you you thought was going to make a remarkable elder uh, comes into the team and there's a little conflict and and it can cause unhealth, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that's important. Uh, so an unhealthy eldership can look like a lot of things. It can look like, you know, a CEO model light where you are elder elder led and and policy, but really you have one guy with a bunch of yes men. Yes. Uh, yeah. That's still the CEO model in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, th- that can be unhealthy or you can have unhealth and not having unity. Uh, one of the things that we work for, that we work hard at at Emmaus is carving out time to truly pastor one another. And so even though I'm a pastor, I mean, that, that doesn't mean I don't need pastoring. I, I desperately need to be pastored. And so uh, I, I need the other guys to be unified and how they're pastoring even me. And so um, if you're not unified, that's going to be very unhealthy on an elder team. Yeah, I think the yes men issue is, you know, one side of it. Certainly if you have an elder who is constantly kind of occupying the seat of devil's advocate or, um, you know, 
it, trying to keep everybody quote unquote honest. So yeah. he's going to vote against everything or he's going to argue every issue. That's a pretty divisive person. It doesn't and mean annoying. That, yeah, it's pretty annoying. <laughs> Almost as annoying as black beans or, or strawberries in the it's salad. Gotta be the third reference in this know, episode. I like it. <laughs> in, in any event, don't be the strawberry in the salad, uh, elder. And that can go one way in the sense of you're always kind of playing the devil's advocate or always pushing back on something. Uh, you're just the fly in the ointment. And it doesn't mean you can't be, you know, um, appropriately critical of things or ask what about questions and those sorts of things. Um, I think that's wise and, and discerning mm-hmm. eldership. But if that's just you, you're playing the um, the critic role, um, that would be somebody who is contributing to an unhealthy plurality. But on the other side is that um, situation where everyone's just a yes man and whatever the, you know, the 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 power pastor is uh, first among equals um, where there's not really equality. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's not. So I, I think plurality, you know, plurality without parity can yes. be very dangerous. And it doesn't mean that there's not a lead pastor in a sense. Um, there's a guy who's mainly in charge, you know, maybe he's the full-time guy and the rest are lay elders or something like that, or he's the main preaching voice. You know, I think all those are appropriate models. You can have a, uh, a true first among equals, uh, and yet you really make sure that they are equals, mm-hmm. that he is listening, uh, to outside counsel. He's listening to constructive criticism. Um, and so if you just got a board surrounded to just kind of, you know, you know, blanket approve everything, um, that the lead guy wants or that the, the one powerful guy wants. That's unhealthy as yeah, well. That's right. Even if everyone is, you know, unanimous, if it's an undiscerning uh, or unthinking um, unanimity, it, it's not good. I've also seen elders who are very close with each other and may consult with each other and even hash things out and disagree and, and kind of work things out, where they themselves, as a as a cloister, have kind of a, a healthy dialogue, but they're closed off to their congregation. Yeah, absolutely. So the elders who kind of treat themselves as like the ruling elders. Mm -hmm. And I think even if your church is not congregationally governed um, uh, or or even if your church is congregationally governed, you can run into this kind of issue. I think maybe it's a greater danger if your church does not have congregational input. Um, But either way, if, if you're closed off to the needs or the care of the church, you're not listening to their counsel or their input, or you're just not adequately conducting pastoral care. So you're just kind of not in touch with them. That's unhealthy plurality either. You may be all great friends and doing well, but you're kind of in, you know, insular from mm-hmm. the flock. That's an unhealthy plurality, I think, as well. All right, let's close with this question. This comes from Kevin. Uh, Kevin asked about the baptism of children, always sort of an important issue uh, for um, credo-baptist churches like ours. Um, how young is too young? It would be one component of the question. Is there such a thing as too young? Uh, how do you know? What are some things to look for? What are some things to ask families? What are some yeah. red flags, et cetera, et cetera? I know this is something that you guys have worked through at yeah. Emmaus, uh, studied for a long time. Mm-hmm. What are some thoughts you have on, on the baptism of children? Yeah, so we have over the past, uh, really the past, I guess it was about a year ago, we started really examining our policies on, obviously we're a Baptist church. Um, and so we started examining our policies on what exactly do we think about this? Uh, we it, it was prompted both by just reading the scriptures and a particular uh, instance where a, a, a father thought his daughter was converted and we had to make decisions. She was very young. And and so we had to talk about what exactly we think about this. But what we didn't realize is that was going to bring up much bigger conversations. And so really the conversation turned into this, a, a couple of questions. There, there, there seem to be a few links in the New Testament when it comes to baptism that we don't want to break. The link between 
being converted and seemingly to be quickly baptized. That seems to be a link. You're converted and then you're, you're baptized. Okay, well, then the link of being baptized and being added into a particular local church, right. I think that's by membership. That's a link we do not want to break. We do not want baptized believers existing outside of a covenant with other local with, – without with – we don't want baptized believers existing non-covenanted to other Christians in a local body. Right. And then the link of um, membership and membership responsibilities. And so we also were worried about, okay, can we create this kind of non-biblical um, office, if you will, or, or stance of you're a member, but you don't have any congregational rights in terms of voting or discipline or mm-hmm. what have you. And so these links, these three links became pretty tricky for us, you know, because you can just imagine the scenario in which an eight-year-old has a legitimate profession of faith and you ask the questions, you've talked to the parents, or maybe that's even too young. Maybe maybe, maybe our listeners would be more comfortable with you know, an 11 or 12-year-old. So an 11-year-old has a confession of faith, they're converted. You really do believe that they are a believer. Well, your convictions would have you follow that trajectory to baptize them quickly, to have them be a member of the church and have that member exercise membership rights in a way that's biblical and healthy. And so we... You see churches responding to this this three-link problem, if you will, in different ways. You'll see people say things like, okay, uh, I agree with that those links are there and they're important and they shouldn't be broke. Uh, however, if, I'm, if I have to break one, I'm going to break the first one, and I'm not going to baptize anyone younger than 18. So that right when we baptize them, we can move them into membership and they can move into exercising their, their membership rights. Or you, you might you might say, no, we're not going to do that. The link between conversion and baptism seems to be stronger in the text than the link between, you know, uh, baptism and, and being a member of the local church. And so we're going to break that link instead. And, and what we're going to do is we're going to baptize people and they're going to be in a special state until we can make them members. But they're not going to be members yet. But we're definitely not going to prolong their baptism. That That is another option. So what we decided to do, uh, we have the benefit of having some exceptionally gifted theologians in our church. So we've jokingly called this the Barrett option because okay. <laughs> uh, Matthew Barrett helped us think through this, um, who's, a, who's a, a, a very gifted thinker. Basically, what we decided to do was we, we do want to keep those links intact. And so we want a credible profession of faith. And so we're going to ask tough questions. We're going to, you know, we, we want to see fruit. We want, we want to ask tough questions. We want them to clearly articulate the gospel beyond just like a Sunday school packaged answer. And then we're going to ask their parents, do you truly believe there is actual conversion taking place? And if, if everything is a green light there, then we really will baptize. We also don't want to break the link in membership. And so what we'll do then, and this adds just a total transparency here, pastors, is this is going to add a lot of work to you. If you, if you choose this route, uh, we then move them through the, the the process that a normal member would go through, but because of the sensitivity of their age and some of the content that happens at members' meetings and stuff, we actually meet with each of the families individually before a members' meeting. So if you know if we're going to practice church discipline because there's sexual immorality or, or something, um, we are. We're going to meet with that family. We're going to say, these are the things we're going to talk about. Here's the language we're going to use. We want you as a parent to parent well, and you decide if you think it's appropriate for them to be in the room when we talk about this. We're not going to take away their vote. We're not going to take their way, take away their privilege of exercising uh, congregational rights. And so you, you decide, you give discernment. 
And so th- th- this is kind of how we've done it is we said we're, we're not going to break any of the links. Yeah. We're just going to add more work in between the links working yeah. with that individual <clears throat> family and that individual child. I think this is exactly right. And what that comes down to is really a caution yeah. that you don't baptize too young. I don't think there's a magic age, um, but there is such a thing as too young, which is not able to carry out uh, reasonably um, – you know, the, even the privileges yes. of, of membership. That's right. And beginning with credible profession of faith, being able to articulate the biblical gospel on their own, not just parroting what you've just said back to them or letting the parents kind of feed them the words, but, you know, um, in, in an interview with them, um, having them explain, first of all, what the gospel is, but also why they want to be baptized. Sometimes you discover uh, that someone's not ready just by asking them, why do you want to be baptized? Yeah. And if they're not able to connect it to a kind of repentance, they're not able to connect it to uh, following Jesus, but it's simply um, you know, a neat thing to do or a traditional thing to do mm-hmm. or even just a vaguely spiritual thing to do, um, then they're not ready. And so what you're already doing is you're, you're probably elevating the age yeah. at which you can do this, but certainly the maturity level That's right. uh, of the right candidate. But I just don't think we have any biblical grounds to baptize somebody that we then don't include as a member of the church. So if you wouldn't give someone communion, you probably shouldn't baptize them. You shouldn't baptize them. That's right. Um, because uh, you shouldn't give communion to those who are not members of the church. Uh, if you're not willing to accept whatever uh, voting ramifications that, you know, um, that little voice would bring, then you shouldn't baptize That's them. Right. Because baptism isn't simply an individual sort of spiritual experience. Amen. It is someone's right. inclusion into the covenant family. So there's no kind of 1.0, 2.0 version of that. We'll baptize you, but you're going to be kind of a junior member until, you know, and there are probably churches that, have, you know, have workarounds for that. We can baptize you and you're a member, but you're not a voting member until mm-hmm. you're 18 or something like that. And I think, you know, churches may be free to do that. I just think you've got to, um, I think the the right prudence is on the front end of baptizing people um, that you're, you know, reasonably certain have a, you know, credible ability to um, you know, show uh, conversion, but also that they can be contributing members of the church. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, that um, sums us up for this time around. Some great questions. We'll do another mailbag episode probably in another few months. Uh, thank you for listening. I hope this has been helpful to you. You can always submit questions to us via email or online. Use the uh, For the Church uh, Twitter handle or submit them through the For the Church Facebook page, and we accumulate those up. If you're on Twitter, maybe, you know, get serious, you know, send some serious <laughs> stuff. Um, uh, stay away from the black beans. And until next time, may Jesus be big in your church. You've been listening to the For the Church podcast, hosted by Jared Wilson, found online at ftc.co. This resource is brought to you by Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri, where we train leaders for the church. 